Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host Kevin Appleby and today we've got another returning guest. Welcome back to Francesco Zapala and today we're going to be talking about what happens when you get a project in distress. So Francesco, welcome back to the show. Hi Kevin, thanks for uh, having me again. Yeah, now last time we spoke you were in Chile. Today yes. I think yes. you're in Italy. Yes. Every time we speak, I'm in different locations, as you can see. Yeah. This is the global village that uh, that you can do your job wherever you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we talked last time a lot about your experiences in working your way up to CFO, going across to Chile as part of a six-person team, setting up the business from scratch, and suddenly having a large number of people working for you in your first country CFO role. But we started touching towards the end on some of the things that you got to do as a CFO. And one of the things we said would be interesting to come back and talk about would be, well, what happens when a project gets into trouble? Because that's really what your company is all about, is about running big projects. Yeah, exactly, Kevin. In the business I have been working for the last years, we are organizing projects. As you know, projects are really risky, no matter what the object or the goal is of every project. But uh, I can say that in particular, in construction and infrastructure projects, in the last few years, we have seen more aggressiveness in commercial strategies. Yeah. Uh, this leads to thinner margins, and still you have a lot of complexity, operational complexity to develop the project. You have a huge workforce. Sometimes we have projects with thousands of people working on it. Good. Yes. And of course, if they are productive projects, we also have really high capital expenditures and equipment. You know, so it's a lot of investment for each project. And you work with tight deadlines and also in a really aggressive and competitive market. So just so the listeners can understand the sort of projects we're talking about, can you mm-hmm. give me one or two examples of the, the sorts of huge projects that you're coming Yeah, so for example, you are building a $1 billion airport, or maybe you are building a $200 million hospital. But still, I mean, the cash flow management, despite the amount, is pretty much the same. I mean, you can have a really nice economic position at completion, but you have to get there. So you have oh. your economic budget which says that, I don't know, let's say you will gain $10 million, but still you can't absolutely run out of cash to get there. So cash can be really, really critical despite the economic position of the project, you know. I, I do know relatively firsthand what it's like in these projects. I've never been in the position of uh, CFO or anywhere near program managing the whole thing, but certainly I was seconded for 12 months to mm-hmm. do a role within the construction of the London 2012 Olympic Games. That mm-hmm. was at the, the early stage where 
a large, large portion of East London was demolished, uh, site cleared, and they built all of the various Olympic venues. Of course, one of the big things there was everybody was really frightened that there would be a huge cost overrun and the whole thing would be late. And it would yeah, the, these yeah. are exactly the biggest issues because, you know, when you tender for the project, basically you fix the price. So you have fixed revenues, yeah. but the cost depends on you and uh, your performance. So you have to be... Uh, quite a maniac, you know, managing costs because the top line, your revenues are pretty much fixed, of course, if you're performing well in terms of production. So also, I would say that contingencies are pretty much infinite in a project. The biggest example is the pandemic. I mean, nobody was expecting that. And uh, still political crisis because sometimes you develop projects in foreign countries. Also, political stability is a, can be a really big issue. And still, since you work in a multinational environment, also fluctuations of currencies or, for example, in these historical periods, interest rates are skyrocketing. So it can change the scenario you're working in really dramatically. What can I say is that we have to be prepared for it. I mean... Even if you have monthly positive cash position, you know, cash in, cash out is positive and looks really great. You have to be sure that you don't have a negative trend because it could be too late, you know, to revert it. So it's really important, first of all, to act uh, as a doctor who basically checks his patients regularly and you can see problems coming. And it makes a lot easier than if you try to take care of that. Looking for the initial symptoms, the warning signs, rather than the major horrendous illness. Exactly, exactly. And how we do it, or how I do it, I experience. Of course, we have a strong reporting system. Uh, So weekly or monthly, we check cash and check cash projection also according to the economic budget of the project control. And uh, of course, there are a lot of tools, but I think that the classic ones, which are accounting-based indicators, which are really vintage, but they still work really well to see some problem coming before you hit the iceberg. So when problems hit, because maybe you didn't see them coming or maybe a pandemic hits, yeah, that's going to be the difficult one. That you can have all of these warning indicators, but something like the pandemic comes along with not a lot of warning at all. You've suddenly got the people having to isolate in certain cases. I could imagine the big problem would be the supply chain problem that cropped up, particularly in construction with materials place and unable to move them. Huge problems. So as we were discussing, I mean, last time we, we had a chat, when you work with project strategical infrastructures, I mean, they never stop because they're right. really important for every government or every country or also private clients. But still, as you said, you have to make it go, you know, with suppliers and et cetera. So if you miss production, you miss the cash in, but still you have fixed costs and fixed payments. 
So that's how your cash balance goes upside down from positive to negative overnight, basically. Very, very quickly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the, the big difference for me is if you have like a temporary gap or a structural problem according to your cash flow. And to revert them, of course, there are different strategies or instrument and a different amount of deep analysis to, to try to work out the issue. I will express myself better. If you have just a couple months problems because you have more investments or, I don't know, production is down for some particular reason, you can still try to use, for example, financial products. But if you have a structural negative cash flow, that's where real strategy kicks in. I reckon that the first point that I usually analyze is, of course, the operational efficiency. So I want to be sure that our costs thing as we were expecting in the budget. So we can run, of course, an analysis of the cost side. Also, we want to be sure that we have uh, smoother processes, for example, billing processes or payment processes. And um, the second source, and I think the most valuable source of financing for a project, I think that it's the client itself. Because our interests are their interests. We are aligned. We both want to get the job done quickly, on time, and be happy. So... Everything starts, of course, if your performance is good. If you're not producing or you're not delivering the quality which was expected, they will not even talk to you. But if there is this trustful relationship, you can always knock to the client's door. Yeah. So it's getting to a place that you're a partnership rather exactly. than a customer supplier relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. On the acting side is exactly how with your suppliers and subcontractors to have a transparent and trustful relationship. So as I said before, your top line, your revenues are fixed by contract. But if you can explain to the client and be trustful that you really have some issues, for example, uh, during pandemic, the logistic costs were skyrocketing. So if you can justify this, and of course it's reasonable, the client can, for example, uh, help you with a variation order or, for example, with an extension of time in the contract or still give you a different scope of work with a higher margin. And all these measures will translate in a better cash flow, basically. So... Treating well your client and making them happy from day zero, I think it's crucial. Of course, for your reputation and everything, but in case problems kicks in, I mean, you have a partner on the project, a really powerful partner. So as you said, also on the, let's say the passive side with suppliers and subcontractors are basically the same, I reckon. Is there something about the way you contract in the first place? Quite often, the client will want to transfer all their risk to the supplier. But the supplier, if taking a lot of risk, will give a high price, so won't want to take it. Is Is there something about getting that ratio of who bears what risk right in the first place a large part of dealing with this? Yeah, absolutely, yes. So 
A part of being more aggressive in commercial strategies also applies to what you're saying, of course. So way of mitigating the risk, working out, let's say, a fair contract. You can have, for example, a polynomic formula which adjusts the contract price, for example, linked to inflation or other indicators. So as I said, your top line is fixed, but it can fluctuate if you have systemic a different systemic environment. Yeah. And still, the client will take, of course, assurance, for example, performance bond or retention on your billing production. And for example, you can ask to convert uh, this cash retention uh, with a bank guarantee. So you will have more cash in hand, basically. And also other risks, really, Kevin, depends on the contract. You can also usually you have to deal and discuss the cap to liabilities. You know, if something goes wrong, how far can I go with my responsibility? Yeah. And also you can mitigate risks uh, with uh, insurances. Yes. But yeah. uh, I insist that uh, a trustful relation with the client is keen from the zero one. So also creating the contract itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I could completely see that. I suppose some of the things that have happened recently may well have caught people out because they've been absent from the economy for so long. I'm thinking particularly higher rates of inflation. At the UK at the moment, we've been talking 8, 9, coming up to 10%. Haven't seen that sort of inflation since possibly the 1970s and 1980s. Similarly, interest rates. We're probably in the UK at the moment, and I I get the impression it's pretty similar globally. Looking at interest rates that were down at one and two percent are now moving towards five and six percent. Yeah, this is a big point, Kevin. Imagine that that's why I was saying the client is your best source of financing because it's also cost free. Yes, if you have a temporary gap and you get a, for example, a working capital line, it has a cost. If you're dealing with your suppliers or subcontractors and you want them to get the money rapidly, you have to pay, for example, some products like factoring or confirming. And of course, it gets your cash flow better, but they have a cost. So you're going to hit your margin and your bottom line. So still, the clients, and I will say also subcontractors and suppliers are your best partner because they're really, really big financiers and for free. So talking about suppliers, I think that also like with the client, you have to be the most transparent you can. So if you are in a difficult financial situation, you have to disclose it. You know, you don't have to keep things under the carpet, as we say in Italy. So the best strategy for me is be transparent, being honest, give realistic dates of payments so that the supplier can adjust their own cash flow and be a trustful partner. Still, you have, for example, let's say commercial strategies or tactics if you're working with the same supplier in different projects, or you can give them the opportunity to accede to new projects in the future. And that's how basically you build a trustful relations, uh, like a partnership. So you just go there and pick 
supplier every time you work. But what I do is try to, to work out partnerships. So in difficult times on both sides, we can be in both sides, give a hand and you help each other. Yeah. And as well as if, if you think in terms of the client, this may not be the only project you do for that client. You might be looking for a series of projects. So making sure you have that trust, that partnership is important and making sure it works, really works in practice, because that's one of your major selling points the next time you tender for a piece of work, that strength of relationship in the past. Yeah, absolutely. On the commercial side, I totally agree with you. The client is happy in one project. You will have more work to do with them. Or still, if you're running different projects for the same clients at the same time, you can try to manage them like in a global way, trying to get something in one project to get a little hand or at the same time, give something more in the other one. You know, so you as with suppliers, you have to think about the client in a global way. Also, reputation is key not only for that single client, but for the market itself. And on top of it, general contractors usually work with a tender department. So in the way to access to new tenders, you have some indicators that you have to comply with. So it's really important that your track record is clean and your track record has a really nice performance. And in case that it doesn't, let's say that soft skills or reputational aspects of your performance can in some way compensate maybe negative indicators. I mean, the client could think, okay, it was just a, an unlucky project, but I know these guys, so I, I still trust them. Yeah. We're talking about projects that could get in trouble from a, a financial point of view, but Another area a problem could really get into trouble in is from a reputational point of view. Thinking back, I, I told you earlier about London 2012. One of the reasons I was there and I had a, a financial role in there, or a not so much a financial role, but a, a measurement role, I was actually in charge of putting together the performance management system mm-hmm. because we tendered for that project and In doing so, we were making lots of promises to the International Olympic Committee of what we were going to do, how good the games were going to be, what they were going to do for the community, and all of those sorts of things. Then the Mayor of London, who at the time was was a gentleman called Ken Livingstone, had made all sorts of political promises about regenerating this part of London, about creating jobs in the immediate community. So. From day one, there was a huge spotlight on the project. Is it delivering what they said? The press looking for opportunities for the the scandalous headline. Something at the time, 2012, a huge number of construction workers in the UK who were from the Eastern Bloc, Poland and countries like that. So they were looking for the scandalous headlines that said, How many Polish workers are working on the Olympic Park against how many locals should have been? So we had a huge, huge reputation management thing to do. So I was there 
in the position of making sure that there was one source of the truth. So that if a number went out about the, the construction, it was the right number. Mm-hmm. And there was only one version of the right number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so do you find that that's something that you've got to be looking at? Absolutely. Those projects? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. First of all, big projects like that must be approved or financed by government. Or you yeah. also have politics on the table. Yes. So they are basically gambling with their political reputation. Yes. So if the project goes well, they're really happy because they will gain more votes. Let's Mm -hmm. say like this. Okay. But on the corporate side, this kind of business have a huge impact on the community, on the environment. And uh, so now we talk a lot about ESG, which is environment, social and uh, governance. Yes. Uh, We had to do it before it was, let's say, trendy because it was necessary. You know, we have oh, a- that was, there were, think back to the Olympics, 10, 12, well, this was 2008, four years before the game. So 15 mm-hmm. years ago now, there were themes and one of the key themes was sustainability. Yeah. So we, we were reporting, even though ESG wasn't a thing back then, we were trying to report on sustainability all the time. Yeah. So I'm really happy that in the last few years, it has been a really let's say, trendy topic, till we get, let's say, to greenwashing, social washing, which are uh, marketing activities. But in this kind of business, money and revenues and margin has never been the priority. The top priority has been safety, always. Safety first. We don't care if we lose money or how good we are. Everybody has to go home to have dinner with their families on one piece, let's say like that. Okay, so ESG has always been in our uh, DNA. So this is, let's say, competitive advantage because when they drop uh, new regulations or new requirements, we are already ready for that. I mean, we are naturally compliant. Okay, you have to work out the reporting, how they want it to be delivered. But I mean, the basics and the DNA is still the same. And so imagine, Kevin, that in the last few years, it has been also a really big part of selection for giving contracts. So usually it has always been who offers the best price and who has the technical ability to get the job done. Now in the last few years, on top of it, it's how good you are with ESG and what will be your impact on sustainability, on the society, on the local communities, on the environment, and how transparent is your organization in terms of governance and so on. So trying to answer to your question or to your comment, this is a really big deal. Because when you want to present yourself, as I said before, to a client, there are indicators. And uh, now there are ESG indicators and you cannot work them out overnight. I mean, you need to change not only your structure or do some sort of corporate social responsibility, which are like spot events. You have to change your philosophy and also adjust your business plan according to ESG principle. 
So yeah. it must be in it's, your DNA. Totally. It is. It's right in the culture of the whole organization, the culture of every project. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's how, for example, companies, Middle East or, or Asia, are struggling to enter to new markets because it's not in their DNA. I mean, right. they have really, really, really low prices. Uh, they have technical know-how. But in this, let's call it new market or new era, they have to deal also with ESG security and uh, corporate social responsibility. So this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. And I have to be really honest. I'm happy that I have been always work with companies really sensitive to this matter. Yeah. So we're talking projects in distress. We majored on being in distress from a cash point of view, Francesco. So do you ever get involved in something where it's gone wrong from an ESG point of view and having yeah. to put things right? So can you tell me a little bit more about that sort of things that you do? Yeah. So ESG is a big deal. I mean, it's just three letters, but it includes a really, really wide amount of concepts and events. So, for example, as I said, security first. So we are very, very sensitive to that. I mean, it is our top priorities in every company I've been working. And uh, usually this also with the clients. So if you have a fatality in a project, which is, which can be, can happen. I mean, there are some sort of risk that you cannot manage. This leads uh, to stop the production, investigation, of course, by the client and authorities. And uh, this is a really big deal because you cannot just lay off 2,000 people overnight and see what happens and uh, get them on board again. I mean, you have a really big amount of fixed costs and payments that you have to take care of and you Mm. have no revenue stream or cash in basically and also this is a really big hit in terms of reputation it's very very important uh, to know what happened first of all because uh, i mean it's a human uh, disaster if you get a loss in a project a human loss in the project so you want you just don't want you really do not want i think every company was nightmare yeah i mean every good company was nightmare unfortunately though you can't anticipate every single situation so no matter what you do there's going to be that tiny tiny chance that it can happen yeah absolutely so you can manage risks with every tool you want but there is always a small percentage of probability that bad things can happen and it's out of your control. So I think that in terms of controlling, it's very important to have nice tools. But the most important thing is the culture, under the culture point of view in the corporations, because you want your people to take care of themselves. Yes. That's the first and biggest risk management tool that I can see. And if something is not working, I want and we strongly suggest workers to raise their hand and stop working if they don't feel safe. This is the biggest field. So in terms of uh, financial distress, for example, a fatality on a project, 
it's a disaster. I mean, also under a financial point of view. Yes. So that's where, again, steps in your reputation and your performance with the client. I mean, if you're trustful to the client and on top of it, you take care of the situation. I mean, showing your face, as we say in Italy, not hiding, taking your responsibility and getting the chance to get better, it can work. But yes. I've seen cases of many companies trying not to take responsibility of that, trying to drop it to the client or to some sort of procedure or stuff like that. And basically, the client kicks you out of the project if it's a serious client. Yes. So it's not only, I mean, operational cash. It's also a disaster in terms of bank guarantees because you drop a performance bond, an advanced payment bond, your retentions, and a lot, a lot of things. So, and that, that has a knock-on effect because the next time you want those products from the yes, bank, they'll be harder to get. They'll cost you more. Yeah, on top of it, be fined by the client if the contract says that. You will never work again with the client in your entire life. Yeah. And you have a really bad reputation in the market. I insist, if you didn't manage the situation as you should, I mean, taking responsibility. If you take responsibility, okay, bad things happen. Of course, if it's not, let's say it's your fault, but you did really your best not to make it happen. Francesco, last time when we talked, you told me all about arriving in Chile as part of a six-person team. Yeah. The sort of things you've been talking about today to imply big systems, big processes, lots of rules in place, lots of really, really tough things to do. How, with that that small team that went chilly in the first place, did you get all of that lot in place and the right culture in place? Mm -hmm. I think it's a bundle of situations. First of all, the employer, I mean, we have a headquarter in Italy, so we have best practices in terms of security and uh, procedures. So if you don't have it, you don't access to that kind of contract. Let's start from this point. Your indicators and your track record doesn't even give you the possibility to present an offer. Okay, so there is this some kind of strong filter for applicants to a project of that type. And on top of it, many members of the team, including myself, already had an experience in Chile. So we already knew what the client wanted. So basically, you have to adapt your best practices to what is required by the client and the local regulation. Fortunately, my current employer and also the previous one working and operating in almost every country in the world, we are prepared to adapt to different environments. And also, as I said, security and safety has always been a really, really important topic for, for this company. So we were basically prepared for that. And then that's when we get there, we are six of us, and the clients, of course, have safety requirements. And we have a team of specialists coming in and uh, trying to work it out. And uh, it's also, I mean, I will say, an iterating process. I mean, 
we always get better. Quite probably, I can say that we give suggestions to our clients to improve safety. I can see the situation. You've got big Italian parent company used to doing this sort of contract elsewhere in the world. Possibly if you if you look at Italy as a country, well-established workforce that's been around for a long time, working with subcontractors where there have been long-term relationships. You've got the policies, you've got the standards, you've got the ways of working. And great, you can take those across to Chile. But I suppose what fascinates me is you've got a brand new workforce you've never worked with before. You've got subcontractors you've never worked with before. You might have all of the, the processes, the systems, the paperwork, but how do you actually get the culture across to those people when they're brand new to it? That's very true, Kevin. So in terms, for example, of safety, we are lucky to work with top-tier clients, zero tolerance. Yep. And also we have ourselves zero tolerance to who is working with us. So according to suppliers and contractors. So if the clients ask us indicators and track record in terms of safety, we do the same with subcontractors. So if they don't have this kind of culture, they don't get on board. Okay. Right. So this is a really big filter for us. Also, I guess first time round, that means that you're, the amount of due diligence you're doing into these organizations is going absolutely. to be far more than you'd normally do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, for example, every new employee who is getting on board has two weeks of classes about safety. I mean, they don't work and they don't produce for two weeks. We mm-hmm. don't care if we are losing money and if it is yeah. a big cost. And also really basic things, but which gives a big impact on the, the cultural side of people getting on the job site. So you get in and you see the counter of how many days without incidents we had on site. So safety mm-hmm. first, I don't know, yes. 300 days without incidents. I remember that way, way back. I was an accountant in ICI huge British chemical producer and safety in the same way as in construction was the big thing. Every time we had a a business exec meeting, the first item on the agenda was safety. The first KPI that we had in the business was, well, the target was zero lost time accidents. Absolutely. Absolutely. It started like that. And also we have supervisors having thoughts every morning to their team on site to get to press the concept that they have to take care of themselves. And still we have improved a tool with uh, some of our clients, which is called the yellow card, which every worker on site has at disposal. So if this is a situation of not safety, he has the right to stop working and call the supervisor. We don't care if he's top production, we want people to be safe. And Believe me that at the beginning, this was not really welcomed by the workers on site because they were afraid to be pointed out as conflicted people. But uh, it was months and months or years of taking care of it and also visit of executives on site to strongly suggest to use this tool and take care of themselves. So this is a real big deal. Yeah, that's it. It's really getting into the 
not just the DNA of the organization, but the DNA of every individual, that this is the way we go about our business. That's yeah. very true. That's very true. Yeah. So yeah. coming back to our conversation, this is the top priority, of course, for human and ethical reasons. Yes. But in terms of business, also you take care of not stopping production or having your project going down. So this is really important. Also under, let's say, a more technical and business point of view. Mm. Francesco, that has been absolutely fascinating. And we've covered an awful lot there. But I think when you look back at the principles are quite simple. First of all, we talked about making sure you're looking for early warnings of anything that's going wrong. Secondly, we're talking about when things do go wrong, make sure we're open and honest and absolutely truthful about them. Third principle was make sure you're working as a partnership with the client and not a, a supplier-client relationship. It's a real partnership. And the final one, I think, that's come out of talking about ESG and so on, it's, it's about culture. It's about the DNA of the organization, the DNA of the teams that work together, right down to individual behavior. Francesca, that has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for coming back and being a guest for the second time on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. My pleasure.